Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who was recently fired from his job as a celebrity limousine driver, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going well, man. It's going well. Uh, better than you, apparently, man. Really sorry to hear about the uh, the old pink slip there. That kind of sucks. I know, dude. It was a rough break. Here's the thing. <laughs> um, I did not know that the dividing uh, glass uh, wall in between us wasn't soundproof. So, oh, wow. Right. And uh, it got a little dicey. Uh, I said some things. Also, not for nothing, I was listening to a lot of our podcast. Um, hot take. Uh, you know, a lot of celebrities don't like what we're saying about them. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, dude, I was going to say, I had one of two guesses. I was going to guess that you were either, uh, you had either Tom Cruise or Ron Howard. One of those two yeah. guys. I think the deal breaker was when I said uh, at the top of the season something about Peter Jackson never taking a shower or doing laundry. Oh. And uh, yeah, he didn't really care for that too much. And he was wealthy enough to put me out of business. So that's, yeah. That's kind of balls because I mean, you're not even, it's not even like you were wrong. I mean, look, I love the dude's <laughs> movies, but I mean, he always, he's, is one of those people that always looks like he needs a bath. Like 100%. No, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. There's, uh, there's, you know, twigs and things in his beard. It's, it's weird, but. Oh uh, shit. There was just a knock at my door. I think Peter Jackson's here. God damn it. That oh, guy shit. has tendrils everywhere. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Ryan, what movie you got for us this week? Jason, this week is a fever dream called Holy Motors, directed by Leos Carax um, from 2012. <laughs> That's probably not how you pronounce that. <laughs> it is. It totally is. Get this. Leos Carax? Leos, uh, Leos Carax. And here's the deal. Uh, it is an anagram of uh, two names, Alex and Oscar. So you read it as such. Leos, uh, you read the middle like Oscar. So it's Leoscarax. Dude, this guy's on some <laughs> whole other shit, isn't he, dude? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, did you watch the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. My apologies, though, sir. Continue. Yeah! So Letterboxd has this described as, we follow 24 hours in the life of a man moving from life to life like a cold and solitary assassin moving from hit to hit. In each of these interwoven lives... The man possesses an entirely distinct identity, sometimes a man, sometimes a woman, sometimes youthful, sometimes old. By turns, uh, sometimes murderer, beggar, company chairman, monstrous creature, worker, and family man. Uh, that's all you get. I tried to scour the internet for a better storyline or plot description. Good luck. I couldn't do it either. <laughs> this movie does not have a plot. This is another one of those uh, under-the-skin kind of experience films that just kind of washes over you. 
Jason, I'm here to tell you, I did the fucking deepest dive for this film to try to crack this nut. Really? And um, I hope I bring something to the table today. Uh, I understand, if I'm not mistaken, you and I are going to have a little disagreement on this. Is that correct? (laughs) It does kind of seem that way. Yeah. I mean, uh, so listeners, you know, Ryan and I try really hard not to talk about the films before the show. Uh, We want to do everything live here for you guys as we're sort of, uh, you know, learning what each other thinks about it as well. But we can kind of get a vibe, right? We'll usually like text each other like, hey, finished the film. And there's just like, you know, you do that 40, 50 times in a row with someone and you can kind of pick up on these tiny little idiosyncrasies, right? Like reading between the lines. So yeah, we didn't really get into it, but basically the vibe I got was that you really loved this film. Ryan, I'm going to tell you I this is probably uh, the film that I had the hardest time responding to. I, I I thought about this film probably more after the fact than most of the other films that we've looked at here, and certainly more than any other film that I will say I didn't love. Right, I am going to come out and say that, and we're going to go into it why. But that being said, Ryan, I'm really glad that you did a deep dive. So, you know, listeners, if you listen to the show, you know, you know uh, that Ryan often comes, you know, pretty well prepared with the research. I just like to be a little bit more off the cuff, give you, you know, sort of my own personal opinions and this and that and the other. So, I was actually going to try to like see if you had some insight on things because, again, Ryan, I'm usually pretty good about if I sit down and I really think about something, I may come to a, a an incorrect. Conclusion conclusion but for the most part i can at least sort of settle on you know where my opinion lies and there is just a lot about this film where even right now i'm like i don't 100 percent know that i got it you know and maybe and that's what we're going to talk about you know is there stuff to get here is it is it a film you have to look at you know either more deeply or perhaps more shallow right maybe there's like like one of the one film yeah one film i was actually correct answer is both (laughs) it reminds me really yeah the of uh, a film i watched recently again the fountain which is darren aronofsky's film and i remember the first movie it's not a great movie (laughs) but i remember part of it is i watched it the first time and i was like i think there's more to this movie than i realize i need to watch it again and then i watched it again recently and i was like no surprisingly like this is one of those movies that feels like it should be really deep and complex like a 2001 puzzle metaphor and it was very straightforward and so part of me wonders if i'm gonna have that same reaction to holy motors after this discussion or go on the other route so i hope it's the other route this movie uh consumed me like DMT consumes Joe Rogan. Like I was just all about this. I couldn't stop talking about this for the days after I watched it. I kept wanting to know more about it. And the more I started to dig in and find out what it is I just watched, uh, the more curious I was and wanted to know more about it. I cannot wait to see Leia's car axe's uh, most recent film, Annette on Same. Amazon prime. I am still really looking forward to that, that one myself too. Right. Yeah. I've got a lot on my plate this week, but uh, as soon as I get back in town um, from work and a few other things I have going on, uh, I'm going to get to that. Yeah. Cause I was, so this rabbit hole took me to Annette because obviously that's, you know, the, all the articles when you start to look up Leia's car axe and, and a cinematographer as uh, Carolyn Champetier, uh, who's, obviously French. Um, and she shot both of these films and Annette looks like this kind of with more of a budget and obviously more modern, uh, tools for cinematography. This was, uh, obviously 2012 was shot in 2011. Um, uh, Holy motors meaning. And, uh, uh, you know, that was a weird, 
time period because it was right on the cusp of the digital revolution. So Red was just releasing their first lines of cameras. Everything was kind of just shifting from digital or from film to digital. And uh, that wasn't like, you know, shitty DV tape or, and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, even the uh, Canon 5D Mark II, where you could finally shoot 24p uh 24 frames per second video on a still photo dslr uh that was around that time as well and then uh, just to kind of put things in context that's when my career took off um doing a lot of sound because i started to meet up with all these guys that all of a sudden could affordably shoot uh their dream projects on digital and yeah. i was helping them learn how to run audio and uh, i made a lot of great connections and then you know they started to shoot on red and airy and you know my career flourished from there nice. uh but uh, this was shot uh, on a budget of $4 million back in 2011, released in 12, and uh, was shot on a Red Epic um, uh, on Anjanu zoom lenses and some Zeiss super speeds. Uh, yeah, I, I really love this movie. Uh, we're going to get into it. I'll let you take it away. Uh, as always, Jason, uh, we know the answer to this, but what did you think about this movie? <laughs> I will be happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Holy Motors. Ah, I got you guys. There is no trailer. It's a French film. Ah. You should know by now when we do the foreign films, there's no trailers. There's no clips because we don't assume that you know what they're talking about any more than we do. So uh, once again, this is another just uh, Jason and Ryan for 90 minutes solid. Sorry, guys, but we'll do our best to entertain you. When this film opens. Oh, my God. I almost forgot. Ryan, I need you to tell me where we should start. At the beginning, uh, which honestly, though, dude, for real, in this particular <laughs> podcast, it doesn't matter. Pick up wherever. It's great. Um, <laughs> wherever you want. Yes. <laughs> and that's been Holy Motors. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> I think Leos Carax would appreciate that review. I think that honestly, he would give us a tip of the hat and say, well done. That's about all we needed to hear about it anyways. <laughs> When this film opens, we're actually treated to some quick old black and white footage of what I believe is a naked man prancing around before we actually cut to a darkened movie theater. Now, through a wide shot, which we could consider the POV of the movie screen, we are watching and seeing that it is a packed house. Yet at the same time, we can't see a single person's face. Instead, everyone is lit harshly from above, allowing us to see only the outlines of all of the figures. Now, off-screen, we do hear dialogue that lets us know the audience is watching a crime film, and that is indeed solidified after we hear the firing of a gun. Now, the funny thing is that after about a minute or so of this, it does feel as though the audience is watching us watch them, which is somewhat disorienting, and in turn, I believe, a good primer for the type of film that we're about to watch. Now, Ryan, from there, we do cut to an image of a guy lying down in bed. There's a dog next to him. He gets up, lights a cigarette, paces around. But the interesting thing is the sound design. What we hear are these sort of boat and ocean sounds, right? As if he's on uh, some sort of big uh, sea, uh, big, big ship. And it's interesting because, you know, we very soon learn that he's in a hotel, like within a city. As a matter of fact, he's actually by the airport. He, he opens the window and we see an airplane landing on a strip. So there's right off the bat, this disorienting difference juxtaposition between the audio and the video. Now he starts feeling against a wall, which has a bunch of tree like wallpaper and sees this opening. All of a sudden notices that his hand, one of his fingers, I believe his ring finger has become an elongated key, 
which he then enters into the opening, uh, unlocks this door that's not really there. It's really just part of the wall that he pushes down. And then he shows up in a movie theater, okay? And in this movie theater, there's like a naked baby walking down the aisles. There's a giant dog roaming the aisles. We still get a lot of that sort of, you know, steamboat and beachside audio. Ryan, what do you think this opening sequence is telling us as an audience? Uh, so <sighs> here's the thing. <laughs> um, for starters, I will say that the the man is played by Mr. Leas Carax himself. Yes. And uh, uh, I did a little history on this, and basically, it's it's thought number one, he won't. This is all kind of very French New Wave. It's also art for art's sake in the sense that he believes that everybody could take away from this film what they want. So every you start to read reviews of this online and get different people's takes and everybody can have a different opinion about it because, you know, it's up to the viewer to get what their personal take on it was. But general consensus seems to believe that this was his uh, return into cinema. So in 91, uh, he releases a film called The Lovers on the Bridge that apparently went way over budget, was poorly received. Uh, he was coming off some hotness in the 80s, uh, released a couple of French films out there. Um, and then he did this big budget film uh, and it did not go well. It was with Juliette Binoche and uh, our man Denis Levant, who plays just about every main character in this particular film. Uh, that's his homie. Um, Denis Levant has been, I believe, starring in almost all of his films. So, um, and this guy is a tour de force, and we're going to get into that here shortly. Uh, but he was kind of ran out of town and wasn't able to get a lot of work. So when he made this almost 13 years later or 10 years, a decade later, um, you know, this was kind of his, he wakes up out of bed, lights a cigarette and he, you know, opens the key. He figures out how to get out of the confinements that he was in, uh, albeit luxurious as they were, and finds his way back into the cinema. And upon his return to the cinema, he finds that um, the audience is, they've got darkened faces. Uh, they're experiencing it in a numb way. Um, altogether, there are um, the dogs kind of roaming the halls and the the naked or small child uh, roaming uh, was not a distraction to them. Um, and so uh, it's kind of my take from what I could gather online that in his return to cinema, he's finding that we are now experiencing uh, performance art such as movies in a completely different way at this time. This is the dawn of social media. Sure. And the entire film then becomes a statement on how we're all performers in our own movie. Yeah. And we're all able to, through online means and other technological advancements, um, be the stars in our own production. And we could change those roles at will, at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. So who I am to you or who I am on this podcast is not who I am to my parents. It's not who I am to women. It's not who I am to uh, other family members or friends that I've met or work relationships and so forth. And we're all playing these whole, um, we're all playing these roles. We're all changing hats constantly. And uh, uh, Denny Levant uh, goes through and shows us in the most extreme fashion possible the human condition as um, uh, Leos Carax uh, woke up to find it uh, when he returned back to his job. 
Okay. So, so but that's here's kind thing. of where so we're that's, at. That's, a, that's sort of like a fancy way of saying like world building. But here's the thing, okay, is if everything is going to be a statement about something that that is outside the film, that 100% explains why I had such a problem with this film. And that's something that uh, we'll go ahead and get into here in just a little bit because I want to keep things moving along. So from there, we cut to this modern, expensive home. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the way it's shot, it actually does kind of look like a sailboat. Uh, which that was, was intentional. Yeah, yeah, of course. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's this wealthy man. He's our protagonist and he's named Oscar. Now, he's obviously very famous uh, and very wealthy because he leaves in a stretch limo. Uh, so, you know, obviously su- successful at what he does. And right off the bat, he has this very sort of cryptic conversation about getting guns, uh, which immediately pivots to him combing his hair and turning on some vanity lights at a desk that is inside this limo. Now, he starts to prepare himself with makeup, and shortly after that, the car stops. Now, he exits disguised as an old woman, okay? And what he does from there is he begins to panhandle to the people. So, now, Ryan, in the moment, I want you to sort of take off your, you know, retrospective glasses. In the moment, what do you think is going on here as you're watching this? Oh, I mean, I have no idea at this point. So, this film um, kind of hit me like narcotics where it took a minute to kick in and uh, as it started to come on i felt like i was feeling something or whatnot albeit you know prescribed or or recreational drugs uh, uh you know take it from my uh metaphor what you will but yeah I, I, it took this when this film started i did not like it i was pissed i was almost pissed because mm-hmm. i was like it's just another nonsense movie for the sake of being a nonsense movie like yeah is this some french david lynch wannabe and I'm going to watch some bullshit for two hours and not have any idea what happened in the end. And it's like, oh, well, just, you know, what, how did it make you feel? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, go fuck yourself how, is how it made me feel. You know, it's the, that was my entrance in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the first scene. Um, by the time we get to, you know, the third or so vignette, really with actually the second with the mocap. Okay. Uh, is when it really started to kick in. And um, I thought, and the beauty of it all and the performance of it all uh, took me over. Um, Denny Levant's performance really won me over. Um, let's get into that. And, uh, and the cinematography, I think both of those things paired so well uh, that it drew me in, won me over, and, um, and then I was along for the ride. And then there were these key moments that we'll get to uh, down the road, these, uh, some of the vignettes that we go through um, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, just so powerful, beautiful, well-performed, well thought out. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the initial, uh, you know, uh, the initial result or, or reaction was my knee jerk was like, you know, F this. So at the time I thought maybe that it was something where it was like, you know, he had some sort of split personality or something that was going on or you yeah. know, he's like super wealthy. And so he gets his rocks off, like pretending to be someone else or like live in sort of like a very different uh, body. Um, that's obviously not going to be the case. So from there, he goes back into the car and that's really, you know, they set up the sort of structure of this film, uh, right up front, which is that he's always just inhabiting a different person, a different being, uh, performs this vignette and then goes back into the limo and then does it all again. And basically, right. uh, when he gets back after this time, he's removing his makeup and his wig and he grabs a file for what's called his second appointment. And I believe his limo driver lets him know, hey, you're going to have nine appointments. And so it's like, okay, so we're going to be basically going through like nine different vignettes over the course of this film. Fine. The second one, the second sort of vignette is he 
to your point earlier, gets himself in this sort of skin-tight black suit with these little balls attached to him. Looks like he's probably doing some mocap. Indeed, he is doing some mocap. So he gets to this sort of giant mechanical factory and he goes inside and he grabs his staff and his blades and he does some cool looking ninja ninja moves and stuff. And the mocap's like infrared lasers. So, you know, they're tracking the balls as he's doing all this stuff. Um, but then, you know, shortly thereafter, this other person walks in and we can tell just from the figure that's silhouetted that it's obviously a female. And, you know, she's kind of got a certain sexuality that she enters the room with. They approach and then they sort of start gyrating and bending around one another, at which point he simulates fellatio, which, by the way, if you guys know anything about Annette, I'm pretty sure this dude is a fan of fellatio. And then uh, he grabs her breasts <laughs> uh, and then she reciprocates and they start basically like 69ing in this mocap sort of way. Now, the funny dude, thing about this, too, I have in my notes 69 upside down Dutch angle and latex <laughs> mocap suits. What the fuck kind of shot is that? That's and, a, I want to see that on a shot list someday. That's fantastic. <laughs> right. And then not only that, but to me, the interesting thing, and again, it sort of establishes a theme that this, you know, director is going to play with is the, the sounds that he uses. So he adds these like very sort of squishy and grunty sound effects that are very inhuman, at which point, you know, a kind of the camera reveals that these two are basically playing these two serpentine demons that are like mating in some sort of weird hellscape. And Ryan, I think at this point, that was where I started to consider the fact that like, oh, okay, so this to me. So it's kind of interesting that you talk about social media, because for me, I really thought that it was more of a metaphor for like acting and, and performance specifically, you know, okay. um, and how. And, and again, I didn't really come to a conclusion as to what exactly it was saying about that other than, um, you know, perhaps something about the disposable nature of acting or the juxtaposition between it being sort of a raw examination of humanity, but also so you could argue somewhat superfluous at the same time. But I mean, I guess you could kind of the same thing about most art in general, right? So I could definitely, I, like I said, to me, it was, I got the vibe that it was trying to say something about, you know, performance, acting, etc. And especially there's like a brief conversation that comes into play later that sort of indicates that. But so I guess my question to you, Ryan, is so you're saying this scene kind of started to win you over. You know, I, I won't even I won't even pepper it with a specific question. I'll just ask you specifically, what about this sequence won you as a viewer over? So there are a few things, um, the, the technical side of it, how it was shot, uh, you, you know, it's worth mentioning that Denny Levant, as he walks into this, uh, he gets out of the limousine and broad daylight, uh, on the rooftop of this, um, building look overlooking Paris and, uh, goes into a doorway and walks into a totally black room. And, uh, he then puts on his suit of black latex, uh, where only his face is exposed, um, and begins to... Uh, again, perform this video game, uh, you know, shooting guns. He's on a treadmill at one point with yeah, a, that was a cool shot. projected like backdrop and he's doing a dead sprint shooting a semi-automatic rifle or automatic rifle of some kind. And, um, but then it, we get into this performance art and um, the twisting and turning of his body, the um, uh, acrobatics and the, the dance of it all. Um, he performed all that. Now it's worth noting that uh, the Denny Levant, um, took courses in pantomime and the circus starting at age 13. 
Uh, one of his heroes is uh, French mime, uh, Marcel Marceau, and he is Shakespearean trained. He did everything for this film. Uh, it's my understanding. So um, hats off to him for you know doing the uh, body uh, contortionist movements that were needed to um, get around his female uh, compa- companion as she gets in and they start to get sexual um, with each other and so forth. But uh, I thought it was a tremendous statement on on violence and sex. I thought it was shot very well. Uh, to your point, what you said earlier, the sound design of this, whether it be the squeak of the latex against each other, how the music would come in and out, if there was any, the uh, body sounds. Um, it was a very... Uh, stripped down kind of uh, rough around the edges look uh, at how human interaction has become digital and uh, prioritized all at the same time. Um, and it just kind of with the and all with the motion motion cap balls on their latex suits as well uh, acted as a light source, which I thought was very creative and, and how their bodies would intertwine um, as they would you know, perform the contortionist movements and so forth uh, throughout the scene. Uh, I thought, you know, it was very captivating. And I would, and this is the scene, you know, because before this, we just had the old lady and, uh, you know, begging with the cane and all of that. And that was kind of a, a very easy going introduction to the craziness and madness that we're about to experience. But this kind of kicked it into full gear. And this is where I was like, I have in my notes here. um, Am I having a stroke? (laughs) because <laughs> i didn't know what the fuck was going on and i thought yeah. it was very shocking um also that uh female contortionist lady that joins him was double cheeked up sure uh, like crazy that girl had some booty so uh, you know. <laughs> see this whole sequence though to me it just it came off it came across as so self-indulgent man like i literally pictured uh you know french the room guy you know and he's like well no see because i'm really good at acrobatics and so like everybody needs to see me like flipping across the room and stuff and then i'm also really good at eating pussy so like i really want to do that on film so everybody knows that and then you know we can also just like uh grab each other's breasts and like 69 it'll be a lot of fun like it felt like some sean connery shit where he's like oh no we got to do the fellatio scene again let's go ahead and do that one again from different angles and stuff like no and i didn't it didn't feel artistic to me it felt again it felt self-indulgent it felt like so it felt it felt like it was like this dude just wanted this to be like his time to show off and i didn't yeah but get that, that, that would mean that i story. would take i didn't get that i would take you into an art museum and you'd look around and you'd be like oh look at all these titties and dicks they just love titties and dicks it's like no no this is art Jason some of and, it can uh, be but that's also like you that's also like you playing fucking Robert De Niro and taxi driver and taking fucking Sybil Shepherd out to a date to a porno theater and then being like what what you know these people are just uh like it's not always art dude yes I understand that sometimes it can be but, but I also understand no that there's a lot of people that are entirely there was no nudity in this entire film which for a French film is really saying that's something that's not true he shows <laughs> off his dong quite a lot in the next scene sir well, we'll, it was blurred out on into. my copy. I don't know what copy you got, but oh, yeah, okay, I hear but it saying. was still there. It was just blurred out. So let's let's continue because this is going to essentially be the same conversation throughout the entire thing. I mean, this film at this point, this is the structure. So for our next sequence, he goes back to his car. He gets another folder. He strips off his old makeup. He uses his new one to dress himself up as what I can only describe as an insane leprechaun who apparently just eats everything. 
And so he puts on these like long nails, makes himself look blind. And then he goes into the cemetery, finds a sewer, drops down, comes back up, which, by the way, I did think was cool. I don't know if you noticed that Pharaoh Monch beat, like the OG Pharaoh Monch beat. I was like, right. That's where it's from. Oh, shit. Like you knew it sampled it from something. And you know what that is? <laughs> no, what is it? Let's go one step further down the rabbit Please. hole. That is the March of Godzilla from Godzilla versus Mothra, oh, of all things. Oh, shit. That's <laughs> awesome. I love that, dude. Loved it so dun, much. Dun, dun, dun. From Pharaoh Monch's infamous one-hit wonder, Simon Says. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, and he but- lets it play in perpetuity. Like, throughout the whole scene, we get this big, long, sweeping scene where the camera goes over the skyline and then goes through a cemetery and then finds its way onto a manhole, and then we go down to the manhole. It's this awesome shot uh, that we... It's a cool shot, yeah. Yeah, that, that plays out, again, uh, like Jason was saying, over or under the score of March of Godzilla. Go look it up. It's a sick song. And um, and then we come in on uh, this character, Monsieur Merde, uh, which in French means shit. So it's Mr. Shit. Mm-hmm. And um, it's worth pointing out, Jason, that this is a character or a vignette that actually the only thing that pre-existed before this film. And it was made, this character and the... Um, uh, the vignette that we're about to go into is an offshoot or an extension of or a sequel to uh, a character, uh, Monsieur Mordet, uh, from Tokyo, uh, which is a series of vignettes from Michel Gondry, Bong Joon-ho, and Denis Levant. And he created his contribution to this feature film, uh, if you have not seen it, uh, it's pretty solid, is Monsieur Mordet, and they go through, and uh, it's this gnome goblin creature that lives in the sewers that comes out and creates terror. I believe the first installment starred Kate Moss. This one is with Ava Mendez. And, um, yeah, so this is a continuation of a story of a Mr. Mordet. And this guy just basically walks around eating shit and scaring kids and eating flowers. And then he stumbles into this beautiful woman, the Eva Mendes character. And then there's also some like weird Andy Warhol photographer guy who becomes yeah, fascinated it's a model shoot. by it's a photography him. shoot. Yeah. And then he shoot, asks, and he his... walks into this fashion shoot and the guy's like enamored by how weird this guy looks. Yeah. And, and then his assistant the basically is going to like try to hire him. And then he just like all of a sudden bites her fingers off and causes mayhem. And then, right. you know, goes and grabs Eva Mendes and throws him over her back and it's like this whole hunchback of Notre Dame kind of thing where he like takes her back to his like trashy hideout and then what does he do? He smokes and eats money and then eats her hair and then there's this whole thing where she's scantily dressed and he tears up her dress and turns it into more or less like a burqa and covers her up completely at which point he gets completely naked and then you know like cozies up to her and drapes himself in rose petals like some goddamn renaissance painting. So, yeah, Ryan, tell me, what's going on? So my take on this was, um, this was representative to me of the internet troll sensation, where men would come in and uh, tell women what they can or cannot do. Uh, As grotesque as they may be in real life, they personify some um, powerful creature and other people embolden them and cheer them on for false reasons. Um, they can be little women and tell them what they can or can't do dress wise and so forth, even though they're able to do whatever they want and become monsters and make monsters of themselves. And you thought uh, that is a as you were watching this in movie. a very literal sense. What's you th- that? And you thought that as you were watching this movie, that's what, absolutely, that's what struck yeah. you. Yes. That is insane. <laughs> that's absolutely insane. How do you, fi- how do you not see that con like that, uh, that connection there? 
Do we not watch the same okay, movie? So, okay, so here's the thing. So is, is The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, about trolling when it was written back in 1800? No. I'm just saying, I think I think that you're doing a lot of work for this guy. That's what I think. No, I'm and not at all. That's exactly I... what I think happens with films like this and with filmmakers like this. It's the equivalent of modern art. It's 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 the I'm going to draw a black circle on a blank white piece of paper and then tell everybody that's it's my statement on racism. That's exactly but what dude, this movie is to me. Is stop, it's nonsense. Stop, 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 and then stop. you go in and you're like, oh, this is what he was saying. Oh no, this is what he was Denny saying. Denny Levant's oh, performance. Denny Levant's performance, Caroline Champatier's cinematography. The and, cinematography uh, is very good. I will 100% give you that. It's wonderfully the score, shot. The sound no design, the that. technical aspects the of this score film. Is fine, you're whittling but, it down. You're whittling it down to a black circle on white paper. I'm whittling it down to what is like, there is no definitive statement. This, this is the equivalent of throw a bunch of shit up at the wall and hope it sticks and let other people sort through it and figure it out. That's exactly I mean, what just, this is. Just because you don't want to see what the statement is or get anything from it, but don't you Each like thing David is Lynch? different. Each don't you is... like David Lynch? Yes, but David don't Lynch. Don't you like Mulholland Drive? Okay, so here's the thing: Mulholland Drive tells a narrative. It is an obscured narrative, and it is a difficult narrative. However, as somebody who went back and for a college paper watched that movie no less than ten times and decoded yeah. every specific metaphor. Mulholland Drive tells a beginning, middle, and end, and that's and 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 I will and I will one hundred percent come out and tell you uh, part of my. So it's probably worth noting I don't like vignette films. Let's let's okay. just get that out of the way, okay? In, in my opinion, it's the it's it's it, and that's essentially what it is. Is it's a collection of short stories. Now, here's the thing: if you give me four complete, you know, short twenty to thirty minute like episodes of television, I can get down with that. What I'm referring to right now is all of the different horror anthology movies. Love the Twilight Zone movie, you know. Love all those sort of trilogy of terror type films and things like that. Even some of the shitty ones, right? But like, so this reminded me basically a lot of coffee and cigarettes, for example, where it's, hey, let's tell seven to ten short little three to five minute stories, each of them saying something. But the problem is that when I come into a movie, I do expect a narrative, right? A beginning, middle and end. That's what I have been conditioned to expect as a filmmaker. Now, if you can come up front and say, hey, bro, this is not like 99% of the films that you watch, so approach it differently, fine. This is essentially a pastiche of music videos. That, that, that's how you could describe it. Maybe they're not all music videos, but it's a pastiche of these self-contained vignettes, each saying something different, but also kind of saying the same. That's a fuck ton of work that you have to do outside of the film in order to appreciate it. And that's another thing that we'll get into in a little bit that I'll save for a moment later. But, but you liked Under the Skin, and we talked about that, and you thought that was one of the, the best movies that we've yeah, watched because, on Yeah, because Under the Skin, it puts everything there on the screen and then lets you work it out. That's what I would argue. You may say otherwise, but I think, I like, for example, like, I... But you... As we, dude, as the, we the talk about... The mental gymnastics we had to do to figure that shit but, out But we did. <laughs> but exactly, but we did, and that's my exact point. And is, I did. I figured okay. this out, and I'm telling you, and you're like, no, fuck that, dude. That's yeah, too exactly. much work. 
No, he no, no. I'm not it saying it's me. too much work. I'm going to watch Friends. I'm not saying it's too much work. I'm <laughs> saying that I disagree with your assessment. I think that he jumped up your ass and convinced you that he was smart. And so you're like, oh, yeah, he's brilliant. Let me find all the ways that he's brilliant. And I'm sitting here telling him, like, no, dude, this no, guy is not blowing at all. smoke. He is a snake not oil at all. salesman. And Again. you just got taken, homie. Quite the contrary. <laughs> I walked into this film thinking it was a load of horse shit, and I was actually feeling the exact same way you walked out of it. Is how I walked into it. That's From the very moment funny. I have in my notes, and we didn't <laughs> we talk like about switched this. places, like because I was totally moment, in, like coming in, like I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing this movie for a decade at least. Dude, the studio intro for Indomia that opens this film up, by the way, <laughs> was so fucking animated and pretentious. And I was like, oh, Christ. <laughs> and then, you know, it went on to do the, uh, you know, the the theater thing. And he's like, oh, and going in a wall. And I'm like, from the get, bro, like, I've already got to, like, Rubik's Cube this shit from the minute I hit play and, and sort my life out. And then we go into the, the old woman with the cane and I'm like, ugh. And it was really the mocap suit thing that like got me started down that path. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, it was the Monsieur Mardet scene that really won me over. And I was just like fascinated <laughs> by Denny Levant's performance in this whole thing and, and how, um, when he took, when he did take his clothes off, he was like a Rodin sculpture, like his body movements as he would contort and shift certain ways was, uh, so sculpted and postured and intentional the way they shot it, the way it's lit. Um, <laughs> dude, see, I'm so jealous right now. Like that's everything you're saying is what I wanted this film to be. Like I, I absolutely would wanted to, to have this. this experience, but I didn't. And I, and I yeah, even went back and I thought about it after the fact. And I was just like, no, dude, this, this doesn't work for me. Like even as, which is hilarious because the minute <laughs> I shut this shit on, I thought as I was hating it in the first few uh, scenes and sequences, I was thinking of my, mind oh jason's gonna fucking love this too. <laughs> look at this it, it this totally is one of those things like because you know what it is it's kind of it reminded me of like french jodorowsky right every like okay it's not really a narrative everything's steeped in like metaphor and symbolism i and it's just but the thing is as i sit here at, I, even even now like as i break this down like i don't i i really don't feel like it's that deep and that and that's and that's the problem with like i i hear what you're saying like i'm Maybe I will give it some time and go back and watch it again with what you're saying and, and see if I can look at it through that lens. But like, again, did you dude, watch this me, alone? I did. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I watch everything alone, dude. I don't subject my wife to these weird ass fucking films. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're still That's married. I'm still I'm married. Got it. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, no. And, and, and there, and again, dude, there are aspects of it. Like it was a film I so wanted to like, uh, as a matter of fact, the, um, so, Okay. Let me let me ask you about this next scene, okay? Because this one I didn't get, dude. It's the sequence where he doesn't really dress up in some weird costume. He basically just kind of is who he is, and he goes and he picks up this his daughter from his party. And at yes. first, like everything's like super cool because she's saying she had a great time and she danced with all these dudes and blah blah blah. And then he gets this call from her friend and realizes that she lied to him. And he gets really upset with the fact that she didn't go out and enjoy herself and dance with a bunch of dudes and basically got scared and hid in the bathroom the whole time. Now, here's the thing that bothers me about this sequence is you don't get the sense that he's pissed about the lying. You get the sense that he's pissed that she wasn't this like social butterfly. And again, right, yeah. so to me, it was like at this point, it's like, OK, the theory that I've settled on and this is a comment on performance and and acting is it seems like that's probably not the case anymore. Right. But this is sort of the theory that I went with. So maybe, you know, because so much of 
being a successful actor is, you know, being open and, you know, networking and, you know, sharing with people. And he was somehow resentful of the fact that she sort of rejected that. And maybe if you want to take it a step further in turn, some somewhat rejected him or something like that. But uh, I would love to see what your you know thoughts and research took you on that. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, go, taking the conversation full circle to, uh, back to the beginning. This is, to me, a statement on the roles we all play, the masks we wear, uh, the things we do that, you know, we may regret or whatever. So now he's stepping into the role of a, um, a father with superficial ideals of their child or uh, bad expectations perhaps or why aren't you better than this or whatnot so uh yeah and then he flies off the handle maybe imposing some of his own insecurities on his own child um i do have in my notes i thought it was hilarious or it would have been hilarious if uh, it wasn't her dad at all and it was just a taxi cab driver and she handed him some money at the end <laughs> and he was just <laughs> an overly uh a rambunctious taxi cab driver imposing all these false ideals on this uh, young woman. But uh, yeah, um, you know, she's obviously insecure and um, and he's acting out and uh, being an asshole dad of sorts. I don't, again, know why this is so hard to wrap your head around or why this is like, I don't know. No, I understand. I really th thought you were going to like this movie, man. So, okay. And so, it's shot so, wonderfully. The bouquet uh, in the background as they're driving through Paris and like how they shot those scenes in the car mm -hmm. under low light conditions. Sure. Okay. It was pretty revolutionary at the time to do with no lights. Ryan, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about this. And I think it's, I, I, I wonder if it will yeah, help yeah. you illuminate my problem with the film. Okay. So, and this has come up before. Okay. And you know that I have, I have a, I have a huge problem with films that, break break the rules that they create right um or you know attempt to get away with something but they haven't like done it in a certain way right i'm thinking of like willie's wonderland for example when the protagonist actually gets captured by one of the mascots and then like shows up in the next scene and immediately i'm like fuck you i'm out like your movie means nothing anymore you set up this you set up this world where if you get captured by these characters you die and that's why i'm supposed to fear them and this character got captured by a character and did not die you broke the rules i'm out done right this is what i feel like this film does time and time again okay if perhaps let's say even just tweaking the structure a little bit to where this is a man who actually does in fact become all of these different people and personas and actually have these experiences and then you could sort of stitch them together over the course of a 90 to 120 minute movie and have an arc where even though he's becoming different people, he is, you know, learning more about himself, etc. Which, by the way, is not dissimilar from my book, Preconscious, available now. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, guys, though, I did, I did write a book. It's called Preconscious. It is on Amazon and it totally has to do with that. Anyways, uh, but so here's what I will say. The fact that he is an actor in this entire film, okay, he's never the characters that he dresses up as. It always keeps me at a distance. So we'll we'll get into it a little bit later, but there's a scene, a, maybe it's like the sixth or seventh vignette, and it's the one where he is dying, supposedly, in front of his niece or whatever, you know? And yes. he's an old man, and he goes to the apartment, and he gets in bed, and he has what's supposed to be this very sort of resonant heartfelt emotional conversation and the opera music is swelling and then he passes and then a few seconds later he's like well that was fun i've got another performance to get to or another assignment see you later niece and she's like yep i've got another one too catch you tomorrow jo joe and it's like 
at that point, why do I care? There's how do I get emotionally invested in a character that's not a character? I don't there was nothing that came before that for me to latch on to why I should care about this guy dying. There's nothing that comes after that I can hang my hat on. I don't understand the nature of the relationship. They just do these things in of the moment with no nothing preceding it and nothing coming afterwards and I'm just supposed right. to feel the weight of that emotion? No, that's bullshit. It's called a Jason, it's called an art film. I'm sorry, what you're looking for is the J.J. Abrams section. Sure, it's yeah, three. okay, yeah. Top let's, show. let's analyze between the two of us who <laughs> likes art films more than the other and who has seen a fuck ton more than the other. Please. And yet Explain here we, we are. More I thought you were, films. Do You don't appreciate French New Wave cinema? or You know or, what's funny? I actually don't like French New Wave cinema, but... I says, normally don't either. Thing, That's why this funny, is fucking breaking okay, my mind right now. This is funny thing, though, just to illustrate, again, you're, this is not French New Wave. Okay, you're you're miscalling, you're mislabeling this film. French New Wave. It's stopped. totally French New Wave inspired. It French New Wave is. stopped it's, decades ago. Okay, you're talking about Agnes Varda. You're talking about Francois Truffaut. You're talking about Jean Luc Godard. This is not French New right. Wave. So, you know. But Leos Carax has addressed that Godard is a direct inspiration from him, and the cinematographer has worked with Godard. So fuck off with that. Okay, yeah. So then I guess the Quentin Tarantino's a uh, 1960s Japanese filmmaker because he's so influenced. No, by him, but right? I'm saying if you like one, how do you not like the other? It's that's entire- like saying you like. That's like saying you like Tarantino, but you don't like black exploitation cinema of the 1970s. That's entirely like, dude. dude bro. There are so many people that love Tarantino and not black exploitation cinema. One hundred percent. Like if if you don't know that those people exist, I'm here to tell you they absolutely do. I am right. I am married to one, and I was birthed by another. Okay. Well, then so, you, you're telling me you like hot dogs, but you don't like pork tenderloin. Is look, what you're dude, me. this this happens every now and then, dude. This absolutely one hundred percent happens. For example, I will give you a perf- I'll give you a perfect example. Right now, I want everybody listening, including you, Ryan, to think of a band, a musical band that you know or you believe or everyone has told you that you should like based on everybody else that you like. And despite many, many attempts, you just can't get into them. Ryan, who is that band for you? Radiohead. Excellent. For me, it's Primus. Absolutely, everybody tells me that I should love Primus because I love all of these different bands. So, Ryan, Holy Motors is my Radiohead slash Primus. It is 100% a film that I should have loved. Uh, I, 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 if you'd on paper, this is 100% a film that I embrace and enjoy. Right. However, this is why it's blowing my mind. <laughs> I thought for but, certain that you were going to love but this like, film. But it's, it's like gushing I said, over it right no, now. No, dude, it's like I said, it's like, it, it, it's, it's, it's fatal flaw is that by him never actually becoming these people by only acting, nothing carries weight. It's exactly the same way right before then. I forget if it's before or after or after rather, but the scene where he ends up shooting the banker, right? So he gets in the limo after another one of his things and then he sees something outside and he's like, oh shit. And he throws open this trunk and he grabs a gun and then jumps out in probably what I would describe as the absolute worst a possible costume you should commit a crime in, which is to be completely <laughs> naked except for the cloth mask that's covering your face, waving a gun as you run down the street to a crowded cafe. And he shoots the banker, and then immediately right. he gets capped by a bunch of people. And after about seven seconds, the limo driver comes out and is like, sorry guys, big mistake here. He didn't really, he thought he was somewhere else, and picks him up and he's like, yep, Sorry about that, guys. 
and goes but back Jason. into the limo. And it's like, so nothing matters. Absolutely Correct. nothing in this film matters. That's the matters. whole statement. That's a That's dumb a whole movie. Statement. That's a fucking That's dumb movie. That's the whole statement. I hate that statement. I hate movies that make that statement. If your entire movie is nothing happens and nothing matters, why did you fucking waste two hours of my time? I don't need two hours to hear that nothing matters. This is exactly why I hate the movie Elephant by Gus Van Sant. It's so incredibly naive to be like, uh, Columbine was just another day. Nothing we could have done. Don't waste my movie by telling me nothing happens and nothing matters. It's a waste but of my time and your movie such a beautiful. Sucks. It does it in such a beautiful way. It's a waste of time. Way. I do not care. And then that's the thing. I didn't think so. I thought it was well shot. I would love to see a photograph book of Holy Motors, right? But no, when you watch a movie, you're coming in and you're telling me a story or a series of stories, right? And you're presenting me with this beautiful visuals and beautiful audio. You can like all this stuff, right? But again, it's like it's like when we watch Zardoz. It's like if, if none of this amounts to anything and it doesn't make sense and it's just this fever dream, like how am I supposed to care about anybody i mean you didn't really love zardoz and, and that was no 1970s different. psychedelic weirdness man that was how is it any different John so Borman okay so 1970s psychedelic weirdness is different than 2012 psychedelic weirdness automatically worth two um, extra stars yeah actually it is to me i i would say that because this was impactful i was taken by this the performances and denny levant is absolutely a better performer than sean connery was in that um it was shot better. The sound design was better. It was technically executed better. It wasn't just about studying Denny Levant's dick for two hours like Zardoz was about Sean Connery. Um, it wasn't silly like a, a Sid and Marty Croft 70s variety show for children like Zardoz was. Um, yeah, this was serious. And it, and it did show that um, life's experiences now don't have the... Uh, gravitas that they used to. Nothing does matter. You and I are screaming at each other over a microphone, and after we're done, we're going to hit stop and say, wow, that was a pretty good episode, bro. High five. <laughs> I'm going to go to my fantasy football draft, and you're going to go get some kittens, and you're going to go put on another mask, and you're going to go do your thing, and I'm going to go wear another hat. Tomorrow, I'm going to go work on set, and I'm going to be that guy and technical guy. This weekend, I'm going to a music festival, and I'm going to go be party guy. Um, and yeah, none of it will have a, uh, a bit, an iota of, of uh, weight or, or significance in any of the other areas of my life. I will be able to pick up stakes and roll this party uh, onto the next chapter of my life uh, without anybody knowing. We are very insignificant. We are small. And, uh, and there's some comfort in that. And I like that. Um, I like that you could be uh, all these different things in your life to different people. And I thought that it was beautifully uh, acted by Denny's, Denny Levant. Did you not like his performance? Was that it? Did he not capture you because it was just over-the-top silliness? And you were like, oh, this guy's a carnival worker. He's a, um, no, uh, like no, a Cirque du Soleil performer. And, uh, and so that whittled it down to like Blue Man Group or like a cheap Las Vegas show. And you're like, fuck this. No, no. Was I mean, that a part of it? No, normally I'm, I'm very impressed by physicality. Um, you know, things like that. Like, and yeah, I mean, he moved, he moved, he moved well and he did a good job playing all of these different, different roles. And, um, I guess, I guess to me, what really, here's the thing. He, he really didn't, I mean, okay. Outside of like the, you know, troll character or whatever, he really didn't act differently. I guess that's what it was, you know, like he didn't, it wasn't like he was Peter Sellers, you know, disappearing into five different roles that he created for this movie. Uh, really, the, the 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 significant props go to the makeup department uh, for making him look so different. But his characters, outside of like I said, maybe the troll and and one other character, uh, they didn't particularly act different. 
you know? So that's, see, Jason, that's nationalist. You think all French people act the same? <laughs> no, I think that if I think that if a Frenchman tries to play nine different characters, that they should have a little bit of different flavor from one to the next. You're like, uh, like so, dude. Okay, like, so for a perfect example, dude with nine different at, one point, at one point, what do you want me to do? At one point, he literally <laughs> disguises himself as an Asian person. Okay, which we won't even go into the problematic uh, nature of a French dude airbrushing himself and putting on a mustache to be Asian first and foremost okay but he does not act any different than he does in the previous or the following character he looks different but does not act different so again i will give you credit for yes his physicality was amazing especially you know it was very impressive the little mocap dance he did and he's obviously a talented dude and good at gymnastics and all of those things um but again you know i didn't get different characters i got different looks two different things all right <laughs> now, one thing I will tell you that I really, really liked is funny. My favorite scene in the entire movie was the intermission. <laughs> I actually Absolutely. really loved that scene. And part of that it's is everybody's favorite. Scene. Is it? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's and I it's love a really it. good one. I was totally Absolutely. able to appreciate that, you know, joyous three to five minutes, just, you know, celebrating music and people coming together and all of that. And it's a palate cleanser. Yeah, it comes right right after the. Uh, the dad dropping the daughter or picking the daughter up from the party and dropping her off. And, um, and then the death sequence right after that. So um, there's this bit of joy in between two very sad and lonely sequences. And um, uh, you know, again, that's how life hits you. You know, Um, I'll, 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 uh, you know, get off this podcast with you after duking it out. I'm going to go to a fantasy football draft and uh, drink some beers and eat some pizza. And uh, then I'm going to go to work tomorrow. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's also just, you know, anytime, like, people create music uh, on film, it's, it, you know, I love that. And, and we're both huge music fans, you know, so that type of stuff appeals to us. But, like, so one of my one of my May favorite... I go ahead and take this sure, uh, go ahead, to, yeah. to set this up? By all means. Set the scene up for the listeners, and then you can describe uh, your take on it a little bit, just so the listeners are cued in on, on what we're doing here. Sure. Um, so, right after we get through with the dro- dropping the daughter off scene, um, uh, he gets out, and uh, we see a long narrow hallway uh it's all stone walls very old looking um like thousands of years old uh and uh, it's lit up at the end of the hallway and it's dark otherwise we see a bald man walking towards camera and we start to uh, hear squeeze box music uh, or accordion music um just long kind of presses on a few notes then he starts to play a bit of a tune we see that it's our denny levant once again uh playing a bald man now and um as he starts to go along, uh, the tune starts to get a little bit of a bop to it. And then other accordion players start to follow suit. Now, how this is shot is one long uh, leading shot uh, through this old church. Now, um, having watched this scene a few times, um, it's a little off-putting because it seems like they're going down a bunch of narrow corridors. And as they're, he's making different turns through different hallways, more and more people start to join the fray, including drummers and horn, brass players, and so forth. Um, and uh, I think there's a guitar player at one point. Yeah. The song they're playing is actually a completely retooled version of R.L. Burnside's Don't Let My Baby Ride from, uh, I believe, 94, 93, something like that. Uh, it's one of my favorite tunes from that era i loved it then i remember it was a music video on mtv that blew my fucking mind i loved the blues kind of mixed up with like the dust brothers early beck sound mm-hmm. uh that it had and then uh but this is a squeeze box stripped down accordion version of that song and it's a jam and um they're making these turns and so forth and then they take a break 
uh, where RL would normally do his chorus breakdown, and then they kicked in full steam, and they let the song play out in total. Again, one long sweeping shot, uh, steady cam shot. Uh, at one point, um, she gets on a crane, uh, and they kind of do a um, what is it? Uh, Touch of evil. Uh, the the end shot of Touch of Evil, mm-hmm. where you know she gets on a crane and the crane lifts up into the church, and so they're able to see over the top of everybody. It's sick, dude. It's done by a um, really, really weird musician named Dr. L, uh, who helped score this film. Uh, if you have a chance, go look this person up. Very strange character. Irish person doing a lot of work in Africa um, with the Congolese and in the Ivory Coast with those musicians, a la Paul Simon from Graceland. Uh, and then again, it sandwiches that and then the following scene where uh, we encounter death. So this was kind of meant as like a happy little palate cleanser of sorbet between uh, two very, very serious notes in the film. Uh, all that said, Jason, what did you think about this scene? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So but what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to move us along because we did talk about uh, the assassin scene and we did talk about um, as well the whole thing where he puts on the robber's mask and runs out to kill her and then the the the, the bedside death chat. You know, we, we've talked about right. all that. So what I want to do is I want to go ahead and take us to uh, what I guess is either the last or the second to last one, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and that's where... You know, we've reached the point where Oscar is, I guess, you know, pretty uh, legitimately getting sick. You know, he's got a a worsening cough. He says it's just a cold, but it seems like it's more than that. And, uh, you know, his limo's driving and his limo driver gets into a little bit of an accident. Not not a terribly bad one, but uh, two limos do hit each other. And as Oscar's getting out, he notices that there's a woman over there. She seems to recognize him, asks if he has 30 minutes to talk. And he says, sure. So... They kind of, you know, get out of the cars while the limo drivers are arguing and they end up walking to this abandoned factory. Uh, Now, this factory is being turned into these like luxury townhomes and it immediately goes into another musical number, which there's been some things that have happened there. So it's not two musical numbers right after the bat, the way it seems talking right now. Um, And again, you know, to your point, Ryan, like it's really well shot. I, you know, there's obvious allusions to some of the grand musicals of the past, you know, because the way that it's set up, there's like a balcony at the top and, you know, we get the scene where she rushes to the balcony and like, you know, is singing her heart out and we get the zoom shot from below, like going up to her, like it's a Vita or some shit. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you definitely feel a lot of that much like the scene earlier in the church it's a very impressive uh single take uh for the most part um i do think maybe they make a couple edit points but um you can There's tell a few yeah yeah so and, and it it's worth noting like that the woman take. is played by the great kylie minogue as well uh who has a lovely voice i do like that they also uh had you know her song playing at the party uh earlier yep. at one point yeah, whatever her hit was yep. uh, can't get you out of my head or something right Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so that was a nice little, uh, I also liked just, uh, apparently, you know, the guy must be a huge Sparks fan because, you know, for those that don't know this, this film Annette is basically an opera set to the music of the Sparks Brothers, which 
now, you know, they're having their moment in the sun after the Edgar Wright documentary. But uh, yeah, the scene where he goes to pick up his daughter, there's that spark song playing right there. So I, I actually imagine. did not notice that. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 It's because they, they basically just have like a one minute take of his face as he's driving to pick her up. It just kind of stays in the car with him. I just didn't know that was the sparks. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was my fault. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, obvious, obvious fan there. But yeah, so, you know, they go through this whole thing, you know, there's this great musical thing and then they end up walking outside and he's like, hey, lovely time. Peace out. Gotta go. And she's like, oh, that's that's fine. And then she takes off her wig and is like, well, might as well jump off this building and fucking jumps off the building, man. And and again, dude, it's just like I like all of these things just happen like they just fucking happen, dude. And it's like I just met this chick and you're asking me to feel a certain way about her offing herself within seven minutes of screen time. I'm sorry, as good of a song as it may have been, like it takes me a little bit longer to warm up to characters. So again, dude, all of these uh, things happen to people and I just have not had any time to care about them or there are people pretending to be other people. Right. But that's just exactly it though, Jason, all these things are happening at that rapid of a pace to all of us in every moment and it's all how we respond to each of those things and then we're able to jostle right in and out of them how we respond to death or love or food or music or art or passion or any of the emotions that we feel or just the experience of life in this modern era and how rapid fast-paced uh you know it is That's the exact storyline. That is the statement. That's the through point. And that particular scene or vignette, if you will, um, is a direct, uh, supposedly a direct um, uh, homage or or representation of his wife who committed suicide in a similar fashion, literally right before this movie was written. And so he wrote that in there. um, And that that was another role he had to play uh, in, uh, you know, saying goodbye to. Uh, his wife and the mother of his child. And now he's raising his child uh, by himself. And so that was a bit of a tip of the hat saying goodbye, baby. And um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, very, very, um, which again is, is powerful and emotional in and of itself, but it doesn't have any connection. I said it's powerful in and of itself, but it doesn't have any connection to anything. And once again, it's like you, you're, you're, you're being asked to do so much work outside of the film. Like like if, if, if that's his point, he does not give you that information anywhere in the movie. And that's the biggest issue that I have with it. So as so like under the skin, again, whatever whatever you're able to come away with from that film, I would argue that it's all there on the film. It's obscured and it's metaphorical, but it's all there. And so much about this film seems to be like, well, when you read about it, it turns out that after the fact, he did this. And so this scene represents this this scene in the movie represents this about him in real life without being tied to the plot of the movie. And now you're telling me this again, and it's things like that that I have such a distaste for in cinema. It's really not that hard. I mean, it is hard, but it's worth the work to find ways to weave these things into a narrative. Like, I'm very sorry, but you can't just come in and interrupt me in the middle of a story or, you know, find me at a party and then be like, hey, guy, I don't know. Let me tell you about the fact that my wife just died. And then six minutes later, you're like, thanks for listening. And you leave. And I'm like, wow, that guy, my heart goes out to that guy. No, you don't think that you'd be like, what the fuck just happened? And why did that guy just tell me about his dead wife? Where the hell did any of this come from? And I just had that experience time and time again with this film. 
Okay. <laughs> and, and and even the end, it's like, again, I don't understand how it's not weird for the sake of being weird where his final assignment is to go home and take care of his wife and kid and he stands outside smoking a cigarette in the rain or whatever the hell it is and then he finally goes in and record scratch, his wife and kid are gorillas. For what? <laughs> Why? What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I thought they were chimpanzees, but that's chimps. It doesn't it. matter. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> God damn it! I can't believe you're buying into all of this, dude. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, side note: nobody ever in the history of mankind ever go with Jason to a fucking museum. He will lose his shit. <laughs> you know what's what the funny? Fuck I- is any of this? <laughs> you know what's funny? I hate museums. <laughs> yeah, well, About there you a, go. It's not parade status. I, I'd sooner go to a museum than a parade. And there yeah. are some really nice museums. Like Long Beach Aquarium is awesome. I don't know if that counts as a museum. Um, but yeah, dude, you take me to Mocha and I'm like, nah, I'm going to play outside. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, it also explain. it does explain a lot. The only thing that's confusing to me is that you like David Lynch. That you liked <laughs> Mulholland Drive. Because you know okay. I watched that movie and I don't know what the fuck is going on. And you admitted earlier in the same podcast that you had to watch that movie 10 fucking times and do a dissertation on it to finally get the fucking point of that movie. Exactly. And tell me what the old man is doing behind the dumpster of Winkies. You know and what? And then, you know, two women and then this and that. And now we're in a, you know, old warehouse and all this and we're being jostled around and now she's an actress and we have to, you know, feel pity for her because of this or that and love lost. And, and then you're going to look at this and judge uh, the filmmaker like 100 just and if you is, didn't like these kinds of movies, these metaphorical movies, and you just like the through point narrative, and you wanted this to be like Diving Bell and the Butterfly is a great example. If you wanted this to be that, where we watched a beginning, middle, and end, three-act structure, changes in people's lives, how it impacted, great cinematography, great score, um, and, uh, you know, that that I could wrap my head around. The fact that you like these other films that are this adjacent, or adjacent to this, um that's what I. That's what's bothering me. Okay, that's what so, so let me explain this. this so this you. is the thing. So with Mulholland Drive, I may have had to watch it ten times, but what I didn't have to do is go online. What I didn't have to do was read a statement from the filmmaker, especially because it's David Lynch. He will never make a statement about any of his films. Right? It's all on the screen. Even if it's incredibly obscured, it was all on the screen. See, I felt it that about this as well. It took me so long to get through it. Again, I, felt I don't that know, as well. no, because no, there is no reason. The opening scene is a perfect example. There is zero context over the course of 120 minutes that you should know that the opening relates to his coming back into cinema. You do not make that inference unless he specifically says it or someone else tells you outside of the film. That information is not on the film. His wife dying and her committing suicide, the character Kylie Minogue being a reference to his wife dying is not in the film. You 100% had to go outside of the film and learn that. So if, if what I'm supposed to take from the film, we've all dealt with, no, 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 no. But here's the thing. If what I'm supposed to take from the film is not available in the film, you have failed. You have to put the information in the film so that I can decode it and come away with it. Even if it takes several viewings, but to say you need to buy the handbook, you need to buy the compendium handbook that goes with the movie to understand it. Fuck you. That's bullshit. 
No, no, because it is for starters. It is all on the screen. It's Everything not. I'm telling you is you on the screen. Need, no, I'm not nothing about gaps. the nothing about the opening scene. You would have been able to infer from the film itself. True or false? What you said about the opening film 100% comes from his statements and other people's statements outside the film. Is that is that false or true? No, that's absolutely false. No, how did? You, what about the film? What about the film tells? Okay, let me answer me this question. Answer me this question. No, 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 no. I'm serious because you just you just falsely answered a question. So tell me in no, the I film. Didn't. Listen, listen no, to I me, didn't. Ryan. Listen to me. Tell me where in the film it communicates that he took a ten year break from filmmaking and this is his foray back into it. Where is that told? So. If it's told in an article on the internet. That's my exact point. No, no. I'm trying to think of a way to put this to a simpleton like you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like if, uh, if Indiana Jones did that same thing and got out of bed and walked in and like, we would be like, Oh, that's kind of a cool metaphor that Indiana Jones is coming back to the movies after all these years. Uh, we haven't seen him in, uh, since about 90, 89, uh, since Last Crusade or Killed... Exactly, and there's context from happen. previous films. So, right, well, that, Leo's that car information has is context as a French film director not in that, a movie. I guess, not is in pretty a movie. popular over Not in a movie. There's no, there's no, there's no Holy Motors prequel. There's no film. Like, the, the Leo Carax character is not... a public figure. Nah, that's... See, like I said, you're doing a lot of work for this guy that he didn't do. So the final sequence, Okay, if Ryan, it was Steven Spielberg, okay. if it was David Lynch, if it was... It wouldn't Edgar matter. Wright, if it was yes, George Lucas. It would be exactly the same. None of it... If it's not on the, if it's not on the screen, it's not on the screen. Why do I have Lucas to... got out of bed and walked into a cinema through a secret locked door, we wouldn't say, oh, he found the key on how to get back into the movies. It seems like a pretty easy dot to connect i don't know what's once i found out that he was ousted from cinema that was the thing i had to look up because i didn't know much about this character in fact if i recall we didn't even know how to pronounce his name correctly in the last episode i had to google that as well so not knowing much about leos cracks uh i i definitely uh had to look up a few things but had i known about him or his career in any way shape or form so he was making a statement about his own career and so uh i had to fill myself in or educate myself a little bit about said career okay uh, but beyond that, um, you know, I had to look up a lot of stuff about Under the Skin, too. Don't kid yourself. That shit was I on the screen look up once I figured out what it was. I literally did not look up a single thing for Under the Skin. I think I'm pretty much... I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that, but I think I told you the things that I looked up and you said, oh, I like that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I also disagreed so, with it. I don't think you did. I did, because we got into that whole thing about her motivations and how I was saying that she was terrified of all these new things that she was learning. And you were like, no, no. We were saying the same thing different ways. Right. Either way. Point is, you're doing a lot of work here. Final sequence, Ryan. Let's go ahead and wrap this one up. I think we've all expressed our mutual uh, positions on this. There's a final sequence. It's actually not bad. And I I still, again, I'm going to ask you to kind of put this in context, dude, because all of these limousines finally pull into this station and the station is called Holy Motors. And all the whole fucking movie too, I was wondering why the hell this movie's called Holy Motors. So I was really waiting for that. So it turns out that apparently it's a business that drives around people to engage in these performances that are ultimately statements on social media. So bring all this together for us, Ryan. No, I don't want to anymore. I'm done with this episode. Because you can't. Because you can't. Because you can't. Because I move on. Because I put it in a way that you can't defend. And so you're like, ah, you got me. So let's go ahead and move on. Three adjectives, Ryan. What you got? Fuck you, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) 
That is three. Well, no, I guess. I don't know. How many adjectives is that? I'm bad with English. I think it's one, maybe. I don't know, but you are. Jason is definitely an adjective from now on because I'm using it to describe <laughs> someone that acts as pretentious as you do, but is a secret simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> Finally being ousted after all this time. Um, I have Intoxicating. Uh, Intoxicating is my first one. I thought that this movie adjusted my brain. I thought I started one way and finished another um, in the same way that uh, a narcotic or uh, a liquor would, where I start thinking I'm fine or thinking things are a certain way, and by the end, uh, they are a completely different way. Uh, The next one I have is... um, breathtakingly beautiful. I thought that uh, it was shot very well. I think you would agree with that. Um, You said that several times throughout. I thought the cinematography was fantastic. Um, It was also all done in camera. They had a limousine built for the set. Uh, Something else I was going to bring up, they widened it so they could add lighting on the outside and uh, modify certain things. Uh, And then they put the, um, what they did is uh, they took that widened, limousine set and attached it to an actual limousine front because it was um, too much of a pain in the ass to have the divider and all the front parts of a limousine done authentically. So they took the front half and stuck it on the back half. Um, So little things like that, camera tricks and things, everything was done very Michel Gondry-esque, if you will, where it was all done on set or in camera. Uh, The last I um, uh, would say you would also agree with, and that is niche. This is not for everyone, and uh, including people named Jason. Uh, I have in my notes here, the last note I have is, I would not recommend this to anybody. And uh, this isn't a personal experience that I had with this film um, that I personally loved. And uh, I thought it was uh, wonderful art. I thought the more I did look into it, um, you know, you're judging me that I had to look into it. I thought it was the other way. I thought the more like I thought it was very under the skin esque where the more I would pull the layers of the onion back, uh, the more I would uh, learn to appreciate how it was made, what they did, who these people were. It was also my first foray into um, Laos Carax and and uh, all these uh, people that worked on this film. So uh, I was starting to research their careers and where they came from and everyone has a wonderful story and uh, all of that. So, um, you know, this is kind of about the death and rebirth of cinema and, and how we consume it. Uh, I think a lot of statements were made. Uh, I'm sorry to the listener that this became a bit of a uh, rough around the edge of shouting match, but no, uh, dude, listeners love that, that shit, dude. Like this is the, that's the entire reason that Siskel and Ebert were so successful. Nobody wants Siskel and Ebert <laughs> I, to listen to them agree with one another. Are you kidding me? I guess. I guess <laughs> that that's actually, fair. as a matter of fact, I don't know if you're listening to it. There's actually uh, for anyone listening to, if you haven't caught it, it came out a little, a uh, few months ago at this point, but it's an awesome show on the ringer podcast um, about Siskel and Ebert. And that was actually one of the things about them is how they actually tried to start their show several times and nobody watched it because they were like too agreeable. And then when, once they started like really leaning into the like arguing with one another, that's when everybody was like, ah, this is interesting. So uh, that's true. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's, what do we all remember about Bill O'Reilly? Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> that's the- <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so no, dude. So I think this is probably the widest we widest apart we've been. Since, since day, the lives of others, I, I was gonna say since Dagon. Actually, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't as vocal in our differences during the Dagon review. But I think you gave that one like a D plus, and I gave it like four and a half stars. But yeah, but lives of others, which all the way going back to episode three, boys and girls of season one. 
Um, yeah, definitely. I think this is the most that we've disagreed on a film since then. And, and the loudest yeah. and most vocally we've done so on air. So hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed that. Uh, like I said, I think I think it's fun. But if you guys are like, "Daddy, stop fighting," uh, we can we can you know we can bring it back for you. Just go ahead and email us. Let us know if you like the uh, if you like the the vocal uh, thrashings, or if you want us to play nice nice with one another. <laughs> what are your three adjectives? I'm really curious to hear. So first one, incoherent. Uh, should not be surprising to anybody. Uh, like I said, I thought this was just a pastiche of. Random things thrown against the wall and stitching them together and uh, hoping you liked what you saw. I'm not going to explain it to you, but uh, there's a lot there if you look into it. And uh, uh, again, I was not playing that game. Uh, if there was there, it was also over obscured. And, and again, that's not that can be a good thing. I mean, like I said, you know, David Lynch definitely can be. And also, Ryan, it's worth noting, you know, I am not a huge, huge David Lynch fan. Um, as a matter of fact, his first two films before he went up his own ass are my favorite films. Now, Eraserhead, you could obviously say of his of his filmography, that is Eraserhead, you could argue, is definitely very, you know, metaphorical and thick. Um, but The Elephant Man is just a very brilliant, emotional story that's well told. And when you start getting into stuff like I wasn't a Twin Peaks fan, I uh, was not a Wild at Heart fan. Um, from what it, from what I can see, like there's no way I'm going anywhere towards uh, near Inland Empire fucking two and a half blue hour velvet? movie i don't like blue velvet um so it's, wow yeah okay yeah no but i but i love mulholland drive and Eraserhead and the elephant man so it well, kind of like we said at the top of the show like we 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 can we all we often filter out people's lesser works right or maybe we were talking about that sure, off the sure. air but yeah you know like i can love someone and they might have 50 films to their name and i only dig four of them but I love those four, and so I love them. And it's like, I'm just filtering out the other 46 that I didn't really care for. Yeah, I think that um, where you and I, I think the disagreement that you and I are having, that I'm that I'm deducing now, or realizing now, is that you feel like this was just a bunch of nonsense thrown at you without any kind of stitching together. Um, and I feel like it, that there, that there was a statement that there was some, something I could derive from it. And you, and you're telling me you didn't get anything from it. And that my friend is art. You and I both could yeah, walk 100%. past a, a statue or a painting and it speaks to me and it doesn't you, yep. I'm looking at, you know, certain things or, or getting certain things out of it, whether it's the color palette used or the lighting or the materials or whatnot. Uh, and then the opposite, absolute opposite is true at the very, next piece over sometimes even by the same artist yeah and um you know it's very interesting i thought that uh personally this film was precisely why we have this podcast i thought that these discussions are healthy i thought that uh you know because you know there's plenty of podcasts out there talking about forrest gump and jurassic park <laughs> but you don't need us to tell you about why you should go see these movies um yeah those are self I, I would you know yeah I, I think it's also worth stating that too uh and i'll toss it back to you um, that if you look online, uh, literally every single discussion about this film goes exactly this way. I was going to say the same divisive. thing. You kind of indi indicated as much uh, when we were talking about yeah. it a little bit that it's just like a very divisive film. And so really obviously, yep. you know, you can you saw that over this last hour and a half, exactly why that is. Yeah. But it impacted me so much that I did feel passionate about it. Uh, yeah. I love this. You know, I would go watch this again right now, and that's why uh, I feel so strongly about it. And I and parallel that or, or pair that with the fact that I was so shocked that you didn't care for it or that you didn't get anything from it because I uh, I absolutely do respect your opinions on film, um, and you you and I do at least have some overlap in the Venn oh, diagram yeah. of what we do. Uh, I mean, dude, we agree way we more agree than we disagree, dude. Like, I mean, our our yeah. ratings are usually right there. But then, yeah, every now and then a film comes 
comes along. And like you say, it's going to be a subjective and divisive film. And, you know, again, we're not the only people that disagree with uh, this nature. I mean, well, and even look, I mean, sometimes sometimes we may agree, but our opinion is just as as divisive to the rest of the cinema world, right? Like I'm thinking of Tucker and Dale versus evil. Like every single person we've talked to from other podcasts loves that movie. Like not just Craig and and Seamus over a repeat viewing, but like everybody else is like, Oh, one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, it's so funny. This and that. Right. So, uh, I mean, you know, dude, I've heard that from friends. I I was telling them, uh, you know, Oh, you got to hear this sketch that we did. Uh, you know, for for the country store rap and all of that for for da- uh, Dale and Tucker yeah, versus great, Evil, they're like, oh, I love that movie. I can't <laughs> wait to hear that episode. And I'm like, oh no, never mind. Don't listen to the episode. Yeah, I know it's also kind of dangerous too because I'm afraid people are gonna like feel like we're like shitting on their favorite movie and be like, nah, I don't like them anymore. They shit on my favorite movie. You know what, Jason? Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> If Fuck this episode showed you, showed you anything, it's that we will we will die on the hills of our opinions. But hey, I will shit on your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why the listeners come to us, isn't it, listeners? For the hot takes, for the firm yep. opinions, for two people who may we may be incredibly wrong, but you'll never know it from how how vociferously we argue our position. Oh, we'll be passionately wrong. <laughs> yes. I, no one's more wrong than me. I'm the most wrong person you'll ever meet in your entire life. You never know it talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> I will die on the hill of being wrong. Let's do this. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I never did throw. No out, idea uh... why I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't throw out my third adjective, and my third adjective is yeah, yeah. Odd. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's, it's actually it's one of our 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 hybrid adjectives, and it's oddly self assured. Now. This is, and I kind of wanted to come back and, and, and I was hoping that this would come up organically. I guess it didn't, but I do want to say this, Ryan, and it very much speaks to your point. And maybe this is a film. I'm even going to come out and say that I bet my, my opinion could be swayed down the line. Okay. And this is why is because every now and then I watch a movie. Okay. And I may not come away with it. Understanding exactly what the statement was or statements if there's multiple. Right. But. The film is conducted and, and comprised in such a way that I feel like the filmmaker 100% knows what they are saying. And I didn't just maybe receive that message, right? So that's kind of like when I when I started off the show saying like it was really hard for me to like, you know, get wrap my head around why I didn't like this movie because again, like I felt like he was very much in control of the film, you know, like we talk about, um, you know, filmmakers, you know, making the film that they set out to make. And I do 100% feel that this dude made exactly the movie that he set out to make. And my challenge is that no matter how long, how long I sat there and thought about it, I couldn't figure out what the fuck he was trying to say. I couldn't figure out why he made this movie, why he felt it was important for me to sit here for two hours and watch this. You know, when before the film started, I thought it was really just going to be a series of, you know, fantastic set pieces. That's really ultimately what I thought I was getting. I thought I didn't expect it to be heavy on plot, but I didn't expect it to be trying to make any statements about the human condition or anything like that. I thought it was going to be one of these like, hey, here's a bunch of cool set pieces and cool music and some cool visuals like, you know, like a Jean-Pierre Jeunet or Michel Gondry minus like the social commentary. Right. And because it's rather the opposite, like the film 
had I felt like it had a lot to say and it was just it was like it was talking a different language man I just everything everything out of his mouth it was like what I'm sorry I didn't catch that huh but to you you're like you know right there with every word like understanding every single thing he says and enthralled by it it's you not know? that I was understanding every word that he said it's uh, and I I think that I was just interested in everything I was seeing listening I wanted to know more about it and so mm-hmm. if I didn't know I I craved to know more and and that's what spurned the deep dives. And that's where I got some of these, uh, you know, fill in the blanks moments. But in all fairness, I, I, like I said earlier, I did do a lot of that with uh, John Glazer's under the skin as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You're telling me that you didn't, you just got it all. And, and um, you know, and it made sense to you right out the bat. I think under the skin made more sense to me. I think that the deep dive paid off for under the skin. It filled in those blanks for me and, and helped me, kind of justify some of the things I felt about it that I was on the right track and so forth whereas um, and also uh, Under the Skin was a repeat uh, viewing for me um, that's true yeah. so uh, the first time I told you I did not care for that film and uh, when I got back to it and watched it under this lens so maybe you know if you ever do get back around to this film again it doesn't sound like you will but if you ever did maybe you'd appreciate it a little more yeah. um, with some of these discussions that we had and, and kind of looking at it from under a different lens um, but uh, hey, I could definitely see that happening. There's plenty more out there. I, I, I don't know that it 100% would, but I think it's definitely something I will come back to after probably a few years or so and, you know, see if there's any sort of different response to it. In the meantime, there's just way too many films that we have to watch, including all these films on our master list that we're going to get to here in a moment. But, uh, Ryan, the time has come for us to go ahead and the time formalize this. And uh, I want you to go ahead and start off. By, well, I'll tell you what. You know what? No, let's be optimists. Let's go out on the high note. So let me go ahead and <laughs> let me formalize shit on this my two and a half out of five stars for Holy Motors. Ryan, give me your significantly better grade rating. Uh, I'm giving this an A, right down the middle A. This is one of my favorite films that we've watched on this podcast. I thought nice. that uh, it was just gorgeous. It was a wonderful work of art. Uh, and I, it made me... Again, want to know more, both know more about this film and other films that these people have all been in. Um, not the least of which is a film that's been on my list for a while, and I don't think it's on our list. Uh, this may be a season three edition if we make it that far, but that is uh, Eyes Without a Face. Um, Dude, yeah, that's French... actually on HBO Max right now. I just added it to my queue. The original from 1960, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the taxi, or the limo driver, Edith Scoob, is the woman from that film oh so, really oh, no, and the mask she puts on at the end in the limousine uh, is actually the mask from Eyes oh Without that's Face. awesome so, uh yeah i'm really looking forward to to seeing that cool. as well so all these different um little things are or tentacles from this film uh all from eyes without a face all the way to annette and everything in between uh a right down the board i can't give it an awesome. a plus but you know i'll give it an a oh yeah i mean that's very very generous i don't think anybody's gonna complain about getting an a so uh, <laughs> I'm sure my parents would have liked to have seen a lot more of those when I was in high school. So, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, guys. So, yes, this has been our very spirited discussion of Holy Motors. Would love to see what you guys think about this film. Obviously, you know, me and Ryan are usually a lot closer in our opinions of the films and we were very far off on this one. So would love to hear what you guys think about Holy Motors. You can hit us up. A number of different ways. First of all, we've got the social medias. Esoterica Cinema is on Twitter as well as Instagram. And then, of course, we've got the email. We are keeping the email up because everybody loves to tell us about their favorite muffins. And, interestingly enough, recently, crepes. 
a lot of crepe fans out there right now, which, you know, you can throw chocolate, Nutella, you can go sweet, savory, doesn't matter. Either way, crepes are awesome. You hey, might Jason, be having a good one. Jason, Hit me up with it. Yes? You know who loves crepes? Who loves Leos Carax. Hey! <laughs> I mean, loves a good crepe. <laughs> well, you know, maybe me and him could bond over crepes then. And then, you know. That's fair. And then I'll give his film another shake. And then next thing you know, we're like skipping arm in arm to Sparks Brothers. But uh, yeah, either way. And then I suppose you don't have to strictly hit us up about muffins and crepes. You can talk to us about things like films and our program and the movies that we should consider putting on for season three and just overall vibes of what you're digging on. What you're digging on. Eh, little reference to the bonus episode there. Esoterica Cinema at gmail.com. So uh, yeah. And then also, just to remind you guys, esotericacinema.com. That's right. We have the website. If I do say so myself, it's fan friggin' tastic. You got some animatics up there. You've got some uh, direct links to web players. And of course, you have access to our master list of films for season two. Because we know that you guys like to play along and see what films we're going to choose at the end of the episodes, like we're about to get into right now. Oh, but wait, not yet, because Ryan, turns out we're still doing that giveaway. Why don't you tell him what's up? Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We need to see it. Screenshot that shit. Send it over to Jason or at Esoterica Cinema um, on Twitter. And uh, we need to see it. And then you get 50 bucks. Let us know how to get it to you. We're dealing in all the cash apps of sorts. So um, not sure how it translates to your country or region of choice. We realize we are global now worldwide Yo, hits thanks germany so, thanks uh, uk yeah. thanks russia we just need to see a review it could be a good review it could be a shit review you could review <laughs> us like jason just reviewed holy motor and rip us a new asshole so you guys don't make any sense uh what are <laughs> you doing talking, how talking, you guys talking, have none of it means anything <laughs> Oh, how do you guys have a career who listens to this? Um, but yeah, let us but let us know what we're doing right or wrong. Yeah. That's really the the end uh, of it is we just want to connect with our listeners. We got listeners last we season do. and yeah. we were like, holy shit, Across people, the world. You know, it's a Sally Field moment. You like us, you really like us. And uh, we just want to hear from you and know more about you, from you, what you like or don't like about the show, about us personally. Uh, get that over to us, screenshot it, send it to us any way you can. Uh, we've been plugging our socials every episode uh, leading up to now. So uh, find us, get it to us, and we'll get you fifty bucks if we choose your. Uh, I-, I was gonna say, review. yeah. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not like we're paying fifty dollars for a single review. Just to be clear, no, no, we're it's a doing contest. A, we're doing a raffle. So the raffle. the cost of entry is to leave us a review on Apple Reviews. Go ahead and send us that we'll screenshot to esotericacinema at gmail or any of the Twitters or Instagrams. And then yeah, you will your name will go in. We're gonna draw it at the end of the month. Here, winner gets fifty bucks. Fan freaking tastic. All right, Ryan. With that out of the way, now let's go ahead and choose. Our next film. Let's see how my week's going to (laughs) go. So once again, one through 200, we are using our random.org true random number generator to select a number. And you're going to go ahead and take out your master list. And I feel like we've been living in this area recently. We just go out. We just went ahead and we just pulled film 60. So, again, go to your list and pull film 60. Oh, that's because we pulled 68 for Holy Motors, and before that we pulled 59 for Harakiri. I don't know how random this random number generator is. And then before that it was 57 for Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, So we're going to be right here. Yeah. 
So we're hanging in the H's then. Is it, uh, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me think here. <laughs> what could it be? Um, no, I got nothing. I'm trying to think of H films. There's not a lot of, apparently there's a lot of dude, H films. Dude, we have a ton of H Paul. films, dude. We have like at least 10 yeah. H films. Number 60 is a little film called Hard Candy. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. So I haven't seen this since it came out. I think we actually might have watched this together in film school. Does that seem familiar? Or did we watch Audition? Because this is basically like American yeah, Audition. Audition. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it was a little, it's a little Red Riding Hood tale. I don't of, think I saw uh, it. Sorts. Is it, is it a... Is it this pre- is the, previously the great Ellen? I was going to say, is Elliot it previously Page? Ellen now Elliot Page? Absolutely. Oh shit! Yeah. Look at that. This was from 2005, so um, you know uh, this would have been right in our film school era. So we may have watched this together, actually. I, yeah, I also, uh, I also I, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, though, I really, I don't think I saw this one. I think I just watched Audition and then assumed that this would be exactly the same film and didn't watch it. Uh, do you want to go ahead and give a formal description, real quick? All right, Jason, uh, Hard Candy from 2005, directed by David Slade. Uh, I forgot David Slade directed this. Hard Candy is wrapped up here as uh, a psychological thriller film focusing on a 14-year-old female vigilante's trapping and torture of a man she suspects of being a sexual predator. Mm. Uh, I do remember this is a bit of a Red Riding Hood tale, Turn of the Tides, and in fact has Elliot Page uh, on the box art. I think uh, shown as a red riding hood in shorts. With I a believe I do remember that a image. Big bear trap. Yep. So, um, yeah, David Slade uh, has done some Black Mirror stuff, did some Twilight stuff, did 30 Days of Night, uh, that werewolf zombie movie, vampire vampire movie. That's what it was. Uh, so he's kind of all over the map on what he's done, some for the better, some for the worse. Done a lot of TV. So uh, I look forward to going back and revisiting this. Um, also... Uh, I've always loved the great Elliot Page, even in Umbrella Academy. So um, this will be a fun one. And I don't think it's very long, so uh, we should be able to blow through it. In and out. There you go. So, yeah, guys. Uh, like Again, hopefully you enjoyed our very spirited discussion here of Holy Motors. Definitely check that one out if you haven't. And let us know what your opinion on the film is. And then go ahead and watch Hard Candy. Uh, so once again, just uh, anybody listening, this is a very... Violent film. This is going to be a very explicitly violent film, like bordering on torture porny if it is the film that I think it is. So if you are the squeamish sort, I don't think you're going to want to watch this film. Everybody else, make sure to watch Hard Candy with Elliot Page and join us next time on Esoterica Cinema. Hey, look, there's Munger Mayor Day. He's going into the sewer. Get him. I'm almost home. You'll never catch me. There he goes. Down that way. Oh, these kids are always up to me lucky seven fingers. With pinky ring, middle, index, and the thumb. A balance for the daily activities. Oh, hey, kids. Now you can get your own box of lucky severed fingers from Corporal Mills, part of your balanced daily activities. Each box comes with a cigar cutter inside, so you can remove your own fingers and play at home. Cool, I'm going to use my fingers to pick my nose. I'm going to put all my fingers on one hand. What were you going to do with them? Oh, I'd hoped you wouldn't ask me that. You see, it gets lonely down here and... I was really my own lady friend, one piece at a time. She's almost complete. I named her Jillian. It was a balanced part of my daily activities. So weird. That's why severed fingers are for kids. 
Don't forget to cauterize those wounds, kids! New boxes of lucky severed fingers! A balance part of your daily activities! Find them in stores next to sack of arms and legs, wherever body parts are sold! Lucky severed fingers, now I can build a lady! From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout, available now in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.